Friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we should all... We also ought to love one another. Good morning. Got some slide or a slide here with a photo. I want to know if any of the faces look familiar to you. You recognize those faces? (laughs) I'm being told to let it go. Um, Aha. Yeah, that's Anna, Elsa, Kristoff, Sven, and Olaf. Uh, and if you're not familiar, those are the main characters from the movie Frozen. came out about six years ago, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a Disney princess movie. And it's a lot like most other Disney princess movies in that the answer to the major plot conflict is true love. Uh, but it's interesting because Anna, one of the uh, princesses up there, she actually doesn't know really what true love is when the movie begins. Uh, We're introduced to a character named Prince Hans, and this is who Anna meets, and he is presented totally as Prince Charming. He's suave, he's handsome, he can sing and dance, and Anna totally falls for him, head over heels, and she and he get engaged the same day they meet. The very same day, yeah, and, and, for the, and the first time you watch the movie, if you buy into you know, all of this stuff, you're like, you're into it. I was in love with Prince Hans first time I saw <laughs> Frozen. It was good. And, and for about two-thirds of the movie, he seems legit. He seems like a good guy. Uh, but, and this is a spoiler alert, but it's six years old, so it's on you. Um, but Hans ends up breaking our hearts. As it turns out, Hans is actually a total jerk. Um, He's not Prince Charming. He only pretends to love Anna, and he actually manipulated her into that engagement because he wanted power. She thought it was true love, but she had really been fooled by this villain masquerading as Prince Charming. And at one point in the movie, after she's heartbroken, after um, this comes out, she actually makes the statement, I don't even know what love is. And so one of the main plots for the movie Frozen is Anna figuring out what love actually is. Now the reason I bring that up is because all of us in this room, you and I, we all have ideas about love. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. We get some of them from Disney, we get some of them from culture, some of them from our family, some from the Bible, some from what we hear in church. And what we end up with is this weird conglomeration of feelings and ideas about love. And they're full of half-truths, and a lot of them appear right and good on the surface, but they're not real. And we take these and we apply them to God. And if we were to measure these truths um, against what the Bible teaches us about love and about God, I think what we'll find is many of us have fallen for Prince Hans. We've fallen for a winsome and charming imposter of the actual true God and his love. And ultimately, it'll, it might look right and sound right on the surface, but it'll ultimately turn out to be a disaster. This is the fourth week and the final week in a series we've been going through titled, What is God Like? 
We've seen that God is knowable, that God is big, and that God is close. Today we're going to see that God is love. Maybe you've heard that statement before. It's one of his most talked about character qualities. The phrase God loves you, I'm sure you've, I hope you've heard it. You've probably said it. It's a very common phrase, and that's a very good thing. Um, and so we're going to talk about what God's love is this morning, but first I want to talk about what his love is not. I want to consider four common misconceptions that we can believe about God's love. Uh, these are, I'm calling them for this sermon, Prince Hans Lies. They look right, they might sound right, but ultimately they actually aren't the real deal. And while this list is far from exhaustive, uh, I'd be willing to bet that everyone in this room struggles with at least one of these lies. And so the first one I want to consider is that God loves me because I'm lovely. Some of us struggle with a deceptive pride. About 20 years ago, in 1999, uh, there was a study done, and they discovered something that is now being called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the idea is that people can't recognize their own incompetence. And so they, what they would do is they'd give a group of people a test, and then they would ask them, how well do you think you did on that test? And consistently, across the board, the people who did worse on the test thought they did better than everyone else, every time. And that's been confirmed a number of times over. And what they're pointing out is we have an uncanny ability to deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we actually are. We do that all the time. We do it with our cognitive abilities. We do it with our physical abilities. And we can do this spiritually, too. And so for some, when they hear the phrase, God loves you, you might think, well, of course he does. After all, I'm basically a good person, aren't I? At least I'm not as bad as other people. I don't lie, or at least I don't lie about big things. I've never killed anyone. I generally try to be nice to people. I'm generally a good person, and you're good, and yes, God loves us, of course. Now, I want to be careful in saying this, because I'm well aware that for some in this room, that's not the case. You don't have a deceptive pride. In fact, maybe it's the other way around, and you might think too low of yourself, so if that's you, take that with a grain of salt. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for those of us, and I would put myself in this category, who struggle with a deceptive pride, who are honestly a little bit self-righteous, we need to be reminded of what the Bible teaches us. We need to be reminded that Romans 3.9 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. And that verse comes in a string of verses all saying the same thing over and over and that verse mentions everyone in this room. It mentions you, and it mentions me. We all fall short. None of us is righteous in light of God's holiness. I mean, maybe if we're grading on a curve, we could say that we are, but, but honestly, we're not. And, and even non-Christian science is, is catching up on this. Um, this last year, there was a book written by a criminal psychologist and a research associate at University College London. Her name's Dr. Julia Shaw, and she just wrote a book about the psychology of evil. And, and she's far from a believer, and, and her conclusions would totally disagree with a lot of things we would believe. But she makes the point that what we see in others and label as evil, things like murder or sexual assault or whatever, what we see in others that we would label as evil, she says, Pretty much the whole population has those tendencies inside themselves. 
So evil is not just something that other people do, but that we all have within us, even if we don't act on it in the same way that others do. And so God's love for us, it's not, it's not there because there's something good and lovely within ourselves. It's in spite of our shortcomings. It's in spite of ourselves that he loves us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to get your act together. He didn't do it because there was something great and lovely in you that he sent Christ. It was, because, it was while you were his enemy, while I was his enemy, pushing him away. And so that's the first lie, and that's a lie for people who struggle with deceptive pride. But on the flip side, there may be others who believe that God loves me only because he has to. That Jesus is making him love me, but if it was really up to God, he'd rather kill me. But I believe in Jesus, so I can play the Jesus card, and oh, he has to be nice to me now. And we picture God is angry and mean, but he's kind of, you know, forced to, to be nice to us like two siblings forced to say sorry. And I'll admit that sometimes we can portray this idea of God when we say things like, and this is a true statement, that Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. That's a true statement. But we might unintentionally infer from that that God therefore doesn't love us, that he has to. Because it's equally true to say that it was because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. You see, the Father's love was as much a part of the incarnation as Jesus's. God didn't lose a cosmic arm wrestling match with Jesus, and so now he has to be nice to us because he lost this bet. <laughs> Jesus is God, and the Father in love sent him for us. So God doesn't love us because he has to. He loves us because that's who he is. We'll talk about that more later. A third lie, and this one's really common. If you grew up in church or if you've been following the Lord for a while, is that God's love fluctuates. It goes up and down, and over time it tends to go down. Yeah, when we first believed in Jesus, we, we really felt that grace and love, and it was really good, but now over time, I've been following him, he expects more, and my job's to maintain that love by obeying and doing the right thing and being the person he wants me to be. And so now, yeah, God loved me, but now it's my responsibility to hold up that love, because if I screw it up, it's not going to keep going. Now, is it important that we as followers of Jesus obey God? Yes, you should say yes, okay? That's an important thing. God cares about obedience. It does matter. But that's not what fuels his love for us. God doesn't fall out of love for us over time because he gets bored or because we struggle with obedience. There's a whole psalm written about this. This is in Psalm 136. And what I want to do is something a, a little bit interactive. We're going to do some responsive reading. I'll read the line on top, and then you read the one in italics, okay? So you've got one line, okay? You just say it three times. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. 
Now, these are just the first three verses. This psalm is 26 verses long, and in 26 verses, the phrase, his love endures forever, goes through again and again. It's a constant refrain throughout the psalm, and the phrase appears an additional 15 times throughout the rest of Scripture. The point is that God's love, it's like a, a rock on the ocean, and as many waves might break against it, it stands there, firm. It doesn't move. God has a much different experience of time than we do. Do you remember being a child and thinking an hour was like forever? <laughs> or a year? Can you, a year? It was an eternity, right? When I was an adult, you have a little bit more perspective on time. And you don't experience it exactly the same. God, God's in a similar position. While our human emotions, even as mature adults, they may fluctuate over time. God's do not. And while our walk with the Lord will have hills and valleys, that's not a result of his love being high at one point and low at another. Like he's just kind of not in the mood anymore. All right, last one, number four. God's love means he is always happy with me. This one might sound a little bit weird. We believe that God is always in a good mood, toward, good mood towards us. Because we hear that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. That is a true statement. And for many of us in this room, we need to get that truth drilled deep into our hearts that we are accepted and secure in Jesus. So I am not trying to push against that at all. That is completely firm. God's love for his chosen people is unconditional. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. But that does not mean he's equally happy with all of our decisions. Some of us believe that God's love means he's never upset with us, but when we sin, he is upset. Not in a get out of my house, you're not my kid, and totally out of control sort of way, but in a that was wrong, and you need to stop doing that kind of way. The Bible teaches that when we disobey the Lord, he absolutely still loves us. That's not called into question one bit, but he's not happy about our sin. And as our heavenly father, he will lovingly and wisely correct us when we need it. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And Revelation 3, 19, this is Jesus himself speaking to his church, says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Uh, a phrase that's helped me in my life, uh, maybe it will help you, is that wise people learn from their discipline and change, but a fool does the same thing over and over. So I just encourage you, if you believe this lie about God, you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over because you're not going to see that the Lord is maybe disciplining you. It's not a real popular thing to say. It can be kind of hard to hear, but I really believe it's biblical that if you can connect a hardship in your life to a specific sin that you know you committed, that might be the Lord's discipline in your life. Now, that's not every hardship, okay? I'm not saying you're to blame for everything that's wrong in your life. You're to blame for some of it, but some of it's other people's fault. 
Some of it's just it is what it is, and it doesn't seem to be anybody's fault. But the point is that sometimes God will let us feel the pain of our mistakes so that we would learn. And he does that because he loves us. His love doesn't mean that he saves us from those things. We may have to experience some consequences now and then. So those are four lies. There are way more we could talk about. God doesn't love us because we're lovely. He doesn't love us because he has to. His love doesn't fade over time, and it doesn't mean that he won't discipline us. But what I want to do now is is stop talking about what God's love is not, and let's talk about what God's love is. And I specifically want to look at the passage that Segan read to us earlier in 1 John chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Um, But I really want to look at the statement that God is love. And the passage is going to be on the screen as well. And let me just read. We're going to look at just uh, verses 8 through 10. And they'll be, we're going to keep them on the screen throughout this um, next little section while I'm talking. It says this. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Just think about that statement for a moment. God is love. It appears two times in the Bible, both of them right here in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. Notice it doesn't say that God is loving which is, of course, true, but the statement, God is love, goes a little bit deeper than that. It's not like love is just an external quality that happens to be true about God, and so we're in luck. No, God is the definition of love, and outside of God, love simply doesn't exist. It's not there, because love is God's nature. So this is where the biblical teaching of the Trinity comes in. The Trinity means that there's one God who has eternally existed in three persons. You've God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And without the Trinity, God could not be loved because love requires an object, right? You can't just say, I love. You have to love something or someone. And so for God to be love requires that there's more than one person involved. And so what we see in Scripture is that this one God has eternally existed in a relationship of love within himself. God the Father has always loved the Son. God the Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit has loved the Son. The Son, the Spirit, and on and on we go. For eternity, God has been other-centered within himself. It's kind of weird to think about. He's been other-centered within himself. The different members of the Trinity, they have always existed in a relationship of selflessness, of care for the other, of deference, of unity. And it is out of this eternal and overflowing love that we have been created and that we were redeemed. So think about it this way. The light and heat that we get from the sun, the energy that we get from the sun, 
is an outflow of what's happening at the core. There's all these like nuclear reactions happening at the core of the sun that travel out to the surface and then you know, across space to us. Okay? In a similar way, the love we get from God is a result of what's happening in the core of his being. Because love is who he is, that's what emanates from him. And because of that, that's really good news for us. That means that God's love is self-originating, which means that it does not depend on you or me. It doesn't depend on our obedience. It doesn't depend on our loveliness or not. It doesn't fade over time because it existed before time began. It doesn't go up and down. The Trinitarian God is love. And right after the first time he says God is love, he tells us exactly what that love looked like. What does it look like for that love to emanate from him? This is how he showed his love, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God's love is ultimately and fully displayed in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to give us life, not when we were God's friends, but when we were his enemies and we had been condemned to death by our own doing. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We didn't start it. He took all the initiative. He paid all the cost. And he did that because that's who he is in the core of his being. He is love. And so it was because of his great love for us that God the Father sent God the Son who willingly came in love to live the most selfless and sacrificial life the world has ever seen. And Jesus himself says in John 15, greater love has known than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So what he's saying is, do you want to know what love looks like? The ultimate display is for a man to sacrifice himself for somebody else. And Jesus he did exactly that for his people. Genuine, biblical, God-like love is a sincere concern and a willingness to suffer personally for the good of another person. And you know what's funny? Even the world around us picks up on that because that's exactly what Anna learned in Frozen. That's exactly what she learned through the end of the movie. You think the whole movie, it's about her and another guy, but no, it's about her selflessly giving herself for her sister. The point is, we might see it here and there in culture. We might see it in movies or in people in our life. We might experience it now and then, but the best we can say about that is it's only a reflection. We can say that other people are loving, but only God is love. That is his nature and his character. And so when we see it played out in society, all we're seeing is God's nature reflected in another person. We've been going through this series, and the question is, what is God like? And what I've wanted to do this morning is just discuss the concept of God's love as something in the core of his being that's not dependent on you or me or anything outside of himself. We've only considered four lies. There are a lot more things that could be discussed when talking about God's love. We could ask the question, how does his love relate to his holiness? 
What about the passages in Bible where or passages in the Bible where he is angry and wrathful and there's judgment? What do we do with those? How does the concept of election play into God's love? It's a deep, deep well, and I, I have not exhausted it this morning. My goal is just that we would see that that is his nature and his character, and that whatever concepts you might be hearing or thinking about love, hold it against that. Hold it against what the scriptures teach about the character of God. And what I want to do this morning is just end this sermon simply by praying for us as a church that we would grasp his great love. This is going to be a prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to have the verses on the screen. And so if you want, I give you full permission to cheat and keep your eyes open while I pray. Um, you can read the passage as I'm going, to, I'm going to pray through it. I've got a written prayer here. Um, or you can bow your head. Whatever works best for you. Let's pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, I ask that you out of your glorious riches, riches which far outweigh anything we have, riches that are infinite and unending, riches that reflect your beauty and goodness, I ask that out of those riches that you would strengthen us, that you would give each one of us what we need in terms of spiritual power and strength. I ask that you'd point out to each one of us the lie that we are tempted to believe about your love and that you would give us through your Holy Spirit, the power in our inner being that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that he would be in us and that we ourselves would be a people of faith, of genuine belief and trust in Jesus. And God, we thank you that in Christ you have chosen and therefore rooted and established us in your love, that it is firm and it is reliable and it's not dependent on us, that it is our foundation. And we ask that with your love as our foundation, that you would give us power together with others in this room and other saints around the world and throughout history who have known it. God, we ask that you would give us power with them to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Jesus. Give us a vision of this love that surpasses knowledge. Give us a sense for this love that is beyond our comprehension. And God, we ask it would not just be a mental understanding of your love, but it would be something that fills us to the measure of your fullness, O oh God. We ask that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.